Our scripture lesson this evening is from Ezekiel chapter 1. I'll read the whole chapter. Uh, Ezekiel is written approximately 600 years before the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, written for the sake of exiles who have been taken out of Jerusalem by the conquering invaders, the Babylonians. The people are away from home, away from the temple, unsure if God is present, if God hears them, if they have instead been cast away from God's presence. And so God comes and reveals himself to a priest who will function also as a prophet and uh, communicate to the people that God himself is with you uh, and asking them the question, will you see his glory and will you respond to his glory properly? Let's listen then to God's word. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Kabar Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, the son of the, the, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kabar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud with brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight and the soles of their feet were like the soles of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. And the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. And the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. And their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another while two covered their bodies, and each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit would go, they went without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Now as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of beryl. And the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being as it were a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went. And the rims were tall and awesome. And the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. Wherever the spirit wanted to go, they went, and the wheels rose along with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels." When those went, these went, and when those stood, these stood, and when those rose from the earth, the wheels rose among them, for the spirit of living creatures was in the wheels. 
Over the heads of the living creatures there was the likeness of an expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. And under the expanse their wings were stretched out straight one toward another. And each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire closed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Amen. I wonder if you have ever tried to tell another person about a dream that you had just had. It's strange, isn't it? You wake up, perhaps, with a clear sense of what you had just dreamt and as soon as you begin to try to put it into words it no longer makes sense you start explaining it and as as I often do I get a few sentences in I say oh whatever it doesn't matter anyway I can't even make sense of it myself what am I supposed to say to you about this dream dreams are confusing they're tricky even the most vivid alarming dream usually starts to sound like nonsense when we tell it to others In a similar way, Ezekiel struggled to convey his vision of God's glory, not because he couldn't keep the details straight, but because words failed to adequately capture what he had witnessed. I don't know if you noticed this as we read chapter 1, but Ezekiel, a priest, a man well-trained in grammar and in the writings, and a very articulate person, no doubt, was forced to use the language of analogy. It had the likeness of this or that. It had the appearance of this or that. It wasn't that thing, but it was like it. It appeared to be like the thing. He struggles the way you might struggle if asked to describe Niagara Falls to someone who hasn't been there before. You've been there, perhaps, and you've felt the mist and the pounding of the waters in your chest and the sound blasting into your ears, but you tried to describe it to someone, and the best you can say is, well, they're they're really big and tall, and there's a lot of water, and it's loud. And someone might picture something far less grand than what you're trying to describe. Words fall short. And yet, however hard Ezekiel's vision was for him to describe, and this should be encouraging to us, it changed him. The vision 
changed him. Ezekiel fell on his face before the likeness of the glory of the Lord in humble submission. And I think that his submissive response is an important interpretive key for us. Like, how should we respond to the reading and reflection upon Ezekiel 1? Well, let's respond in kind with Ezekiel, who experienced the vision firsthand. We won't fall on our faces in a literal way, perhaps, but let's submit ourselves to the glory of God. This vision is an overwhelming sensory experience that's meant to astonish us with a glimpse of God's indescribable majesty. Because only when we experience God's glory will we say with Samuel and with Ezekiel and with Isaiah and many others, Speak, Lord. Your servant's listening. We see you, we hear you, and we want to respond to what, who you are and what you have to say. So let's approach this vision, this chapter in this way. Two things I want to consider with you this evening. First of all, we want to try to experience Ezekiel's vision. We've read it, so we've begun to experience it. We want to try to understand the vision as best we can. And then second, let's try to respond appropriately to that vision. So first, let's experience Ezekiel's Vision. Let's walk through, again, trying to make sure we don't miss the sense of what Ezekiel experienced. First of all, after introducing the prophet and the context and the time and so on in the first, four, uh, first three verses, Ezekiel first sees a fiery cloud and four living creatures in verses 4 through 21. The swirling cloud was illuminated by fire radiating from its midst. Imagine standing in front of a tornado that is lit from within because of lightning flashing inside of it. The cloud must have been frightening. Something that any woman would have sensibly turned from and found cover for, but any man would have stood there probably too long or walked closer to get a better view. But this thing was a frightening reality for Ezekiel. But what caught his attention were the living creatures moving inside the fiery tornado. The appearance of the four living creatures was startling. Their bodies, Ezekiel says, sparkled like burnished bronze, like the appearance, he says in verse 13, of torches moving to and fro. And the fire was bright. And out of the fire went forth lightning. So four living creatures lit up like lightning And each living creature had four faces, one on each of its four sides, face of a lion, an ox, an eagle, and a man. And if you, as I understand it, at least the the way that the creatures, four of them, were assembled in a circle, each looking outward, Ezekiel could see every side, or at least one side of those four faces from wherever he stood because of their configuration and their four-sided faces. A very eerie appearance, no doubt. The creatures also had, the scripture says, the hands of a man. 
They had four wings stretched out, covering their bodies. Beside each living creature, we're told, was a wheel, sparkling like a precious stone and plastered with eyes. Its design of a wheel within a wheel, so uh, two wheels bisecting one another, enabled it, because also being plastered with eyes, to see and move in any direction. Now understand this is, uh, we don't have to try to, uh, like engineers or mechanics, try to figure out how these things would work. Uh, the symbolism here is meant to arrest our attention. But what, what Ezekiel senses is, I'm seen, and this Seeing thing can move in any direction effortlessly. I find it very interesting that Ezekiel was fully capable of getting very precise, definite measurements. As you find in the last several chapters, the measurements of the new Jerusalem and the new temple and so on. So many cubits high and long and wide. But but when he looks at these wheels, all he can say in verse 18 is that they were tall and awesome. He doesn't try to approximate height or width. He just says they were tall and they were awesome. Each living creature was so united to its wheel by a common spirit that each creature moved with its wheel. Verse 12 and verse 20. When one was lifted up from the earth, so was the other. The living creatures, were told in verse 14, darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. When the living creatures and the wheels moved, the noise, we're told in verse 24, was like the sound of many waters. Perhaps uh, like Niagara Falls dumping three million gallons of water every two seconds. And you know if you stand next to that water, it's deafening the volume, uh, the, the sound produced from that volume of waters. And so Ezekiel sees this cloud this windstorm, lightning inside, living creatures with strange faces and wings connected with wheels, plastered with eyes, moving about like lightning. And you may think that would be enough to absolutely shock a man. But as, as his eyes, you might say, move upward... To take in the immensity of this vision, he sees something even more startling. Second, Ezekiel sees an expanse or firmament above the creature. So there's this separation of sorts that distinguishes everything that we've heard him describe to this point below the firmament from what he's going to witness above the firmament. I know this is hard to picture, but... The word here for firmament literally describes metal hammered into an expansive plate. Or perhaps more figuratively, Moses used the word to describe the broad space that God made to separate this world from everything beyond in Genesis 1 verses 6 through 8. And so uh, symbolically, this expanse is synonymous with heaven and God's sanctuary. And so this is how I understand it. Ezekiel sees a mini horizon shining like awe-inspiring crystal separating two scenes. The somewhat more 
earthly scene beneath the firmament and then the scene above. His vision climaxes with what he sees above the firmament. He saw, as he says in verse 26, a likeness with a human appearance seated above a sparkling blue throne. He sees a sort of image of God, what theologians call a theophany, a a revelation of the pre-incarnate Christ. And, And more than the rest of the vision, the Christ figure's glory nearly defied description. If you just go back with me a moment, if you have your Bibles open or just listen to verse 27, I mentioned how up to this point Ezekiel struggles to describe what he saw. He uses qualifiers, uh, the likeness of, the appearance of. But in verse 27, he uses five qualifiers as he's trying to describe this creature, this, this, this being. I could could even back up to verse 26. It says that seated above the likeness of a throne, I'm not sure it was a throne, he says, but it was like a throne, was a likeness with a human appearance and upward from what had the appearance of his waist. I'm not saying it was his waist, but it looked like what I would describe as a waist. I saw, as it were, gleaming metal. So it wasn't gleaming metal, but if I could describe it as best I could, it was gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire. It wasn't fire, but it was, I don't know how else to describe it. It was like fire, enclosing it all around downward from what had the appearance of his waist. I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was a brightness all around him. He's he's bumping up hard against the limits of language to describe the glory of God. His color was amber, like fire, radiating from his figure with something like the appearance of a bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. Verse 28 says, You hear him struggling, trying, Grasping at words. Let me see if I can try to summarize this chapter in, in a sentence or two, in a few words. I think what we see in chapter 1 of Ezekiel is this. From this fiery creature, exalted on a brilliant throne, resting on a crystal-like expanse, carried by four terrifying living creatures that moved about with eye-covered wheels within a pulsating cloud, (coughs) Ezekiel heard a voice. And he fell on his face. (coughs) What we gather from this chapter is this. The God of glory is speaking. He's arresting the attention, not only of Ezekiel, but of us as well. And we have to ask this question. Are we listening? Are we noticing? Are we paying attention to what we're witnessing here? And so, as we ask that question, 
we want to consider how to properly respond to Ezekiel's vision. This vision of God's glory is meant, excuse me, to confront us with truths about God that we have to know if we're going to truly hear him. So let me suggest three things, three ways that we would respond to this vision properly. Three things that we must know about God that this vision tells us. And the first, and I think probably most obvious, is that God is holy. (coughs) This vision combines images that we've seen elsewhere in the Old Testament. You have images drawn from the Holy of Holies, these living creatures. You have images drawn from the mountain at Sinai where God met with his people. You have the lightning flashing, the storm cloud, both of which declare God's distinction from his creation, neither of which the mountain or the Holy of Holies could be touched casually without invoking God's judgment upon the person who did so. And so this fiery cloud beneath Christ's throne suggests God's holiness, his utter distinction from the rest of creation. It communicates here God's prerogative to purify and destroy unrighteousness. As we witnessed from the Uh, many forest fires that were in the news over the past summer and still going and before that as well, there's hardly more dangerous combination than fire and wind. And that's exactly what we have underneath this Christ figure is a windy fire, a, a, a fire that supplies its own wind source. Firefighters in those uh, affected regions will be praying for uh, either rain or or calm, lack of wind. It's the wind that drives that fire. But that's what we see Christ standing upon, is a fiery wind. The wheels from this image remind us of the chariots of the great war machines of Ezekiel's day. The sound that Ezekiel heard, he says in verse 24, was like the sound of the Almighty... And a sound of tumult like the sound of an army. You understand, Ezekiel's saying, it sounds like God, this loud sound that I hear, sounds like an army going to war. And it's no coincidence that Ezekiel brings both of these images together. God is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. He is like a great army going out to battle against his enemies. And that army makes a great shout like we hear the uh, army of the Confederacy made as they would go out to fight against the northern armies. This great war shout that made people tremble. This is what Ezekiel hears. But it's the sound of God and the sound of an army. And so what... Ezekiel does here is he presents us with a dangerous God who is at the same time both a terrible enemy and a perfect deliverer. 
And of course, God must be both. You cannot deliver against a host of evil without being a great power. And so we see that God is holy. He's separate from sin. He's able to judge his enemies. But then second, we notice that God is present from this vision. The Babylonian exiles of Ezekiel's day questioned God's presence. In their mind, God was tied to Jerusalem, where his name was placed on the city, on the temple, where there were so many reminders that this was God's place. And, and we perhaps understand a little bit of what the exiles must have felt. We sometimes live as though God is only present in worship, right? There are things that we would never do in the context of a congregational worship service that we may think know nothing of in another setting. We think, well, God is here. God is with us. God is present in a special way. And so we think and feel and act in a certain way, which we should, but, but God is present everywhere. We might wonder, does it matter how I behave when God isn't present as the exiles in Babylon did? But, of course, that's the wrong question to ask because God is present. Ezekiel is assaulted by sights and sounds so magnificent that the vision knocked him over. God was in his midst and he fell down before the Lord like Isaiah, like the Apostle John, like so many, uh, so great uh, 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 a percentage of those who saw anything like the full glory of God, they didn't know, didn't know how to respond to it, couldn't take it all in. This vision, though, is only a faint reflection of the heavenly throne from which Christ rules our affairs today. Right? Obviously, this is like a dream. It's a vision, but it's like a dream. It's an approximation. It's a visual description. It's, it's a reflection of the reality. And so if we, if we tremble at this vision, which we should, we should recognize the reality is greater. The eyes on the wheels and the movement of the throne above the living creature shows that God is present in intelligent action Everywhere, fleeing from him is impossible. And so, depending on who you are, this is, as you think about the, the glory of God, in one sense, it's the stuff of nightmares. The Holy One is here, living in the midst of sinners. It's no wonder that Ezekiel fell down as if dead. And yet, in this image, despite all of its terribleness, God is conveyed in human likeness. In human likeness to show his interest in us and his sympathy toward us. He sees, I mean, just imagine poor Ezekiel. He's, he sees this vision, the whirlwind, the living creatures, the eyes. And he doesn't hardly have a category for any of it. He sees this brilliant expanse, this, gore, this gorgeous throne. I don't know what's going on. And then he keeps looking up and he says, I saw 
a creature with the appearance of a man. I knew it wasn't a man. I knew it wasn't just a man, an ordinary man, but I could relate. I knew, I knew how to describe it. This Christ figure is also shrouded in a rainbow, one of the most ancient of all covenant images to convey his intention of peace toward all those who keep his covenant. And so in what this passage teaches to us is that in Christ, the glorious God kneels to meet us and approaches us in terms of salvation, grace, and mercy. So we see a, a picture here of the Lord Jesus, not yet presented as humbly as we have in, uh, in his birth and in his incarnation. But we do see God made somewhat approachable. And yet, as we want to consider in the third application, what we learn from this passage about God is that he must be obeyed. He must be obeyed. In the next chapter, God commands Ezekiel to stand on his feet. He pulls him up, as it were, and says to him, speak my truth to a rebellious people. You see what God is doing? He He knocks him over with this vision of his glory and then picks him up and says, now go and do my bidding. And what do you think Ezekiel does? Does he obey? Of course he obeys. He's witnessed something of the glory of God. Of course he obeys. The the glory of God moves us into the world with obedience. This vision of Almighty God has, has... just gripped him. How else could he respond? Ezekiel's call here reminds us of Isaiah's call. After startling Isaiah with his glory, God called him to go and speak for him. And the same sort of thing happened also in the New Testament in connection with the ministry of Jesus Christ. When Jesus' glory was momentarily unveiled on the Mount of Transfiguration, his disciples saw it, and the Bible says they were greatly afraid. I don't know if they'd ever been this greatly afraid of Jesus before. They had eaten with him. He had talked differently than them, but somewhat like them. They, they, they found him approachable, but in this moment when the glory of God came from him, they were afraid. And Yet, this experience that the disciples had on the Mount of Transfiguration revolutionized their journey of discipleship. Peter later wrote of this event in 2 Peter 1 verse 6, saying, We were eyewitnesses of His majesty, like Ezekiel. And like any who read these passages become witnesses of His majesty. And John put it this way in John Uh, 1 verse 14, we beheld his glory. And in response to what they saw, they dedicated their lives to God. And so for us too, true discipleship depends on a deep and abiding sense of God's glory. if if, If you think of God as ordinary, as common, as someone quite like us, There's very little that you would do for such a a, a being. Only a humble and loving 
response to a clear impression of the terrible strength and majesty of God can make a person fit for God's service. And so this text leaves us with a question. How how do we respond in the call to discipleship to the challenges of this life? How do we take up our cross and follow Jesus? And our answer to that question depends on whether or not we are impressed with God. Whether or not we found him to be a loving friend and father in addition to being a terrible warrior. One day, all of us will see Christ's majesty. And it will be as hard for us to describe, perhaps, as it was for Ezekiel to describe this vision on the plains. Revelation tells us what that will be like in chapter 6, verses 16. Some people, when they see the majesty of Jesus, will hate it. The call to the mountains and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? But by faith in Christ, God's majesty becomes our confidence, our hope, our motivation for a life of practical holiness and deep happiness. Do you you see God's glory? If you see it, respond with humility and comfort and, and serve him with all of your heart. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you so much for the Bible, which reveals to us things that were witnessed by your holy prophets. We pray that we would take what we have heard and even to some extent seen, and that we would respond as your servant did so many years ago, fall down before you in reverence and awe expecting you to pick us up and to say, go, take up your cross and follow me. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.